0: Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to be back after a short break with a new podcast and even more excited to cross over today to Berlin, Germany to catch up with my buddy, Philipp Grotte. Philipp, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Marcus. Nice to meet you.
0: <laughs> yeah, good, to, good to have you on the line. And obviously, we've been talking a bit here the last few weeks. Uh, when, all, when I was back in Germany as well over... Over the holidays, and uh, and I know we you have tons of great stories. Um, some are recordable; others uh, we will not be uh, sharing with the world. But uh, all of them are great, and uh, we know there's a lot of uh, interesting information here again of uh, what the sports marketing industry, has, you know, did over the last 25 years of your own career. Uh, and that's obviously, as usual, we'll be digging deep into it. And so let me just sort of give a quick. Uh, intro on yourself. Uh, for everyone who might not know you, uh, Philip is from Germany, originally uh, studied in Hamburg um, and uh, from there ended up with UFA Sports, which obviously is uh, was a top agency in those days, um, which uh, nowadays is called Sport 5 again. Um, it went through various incarnations captured some of that already was uh, Robert Mueller before. We'll hear lots more great stuff from new for Sports here from Philip uh, and uh, several years with IMG. And of course, uh, probably most well-known Philip is for his own agency, Kentaro, which uh, had a strong run for almost over a decade uh, out of London. And so we're going to dig into all this great stuff from obviously starting the career to being an entrepreneur in the industry. So... But as we always do, we'll go right back to where it all started, studying law in Hamburg. And there's a bit of some fun stories there, how what you're actually doing a bit on, this, you know, on the side of it. Uh, Philip, tell us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Of course, yeah, I studied law in Hamburg in the late 80s and early 90s of the last century.
0: <laughs> Last but of, yeah, sounds it sounds
1: like years ago, Yeah, <laughs> and obviously in the sports rights business is already a couple of ages, I would say. And yes, I did a lot of things apart from studying law. I don't know if I ever did some sleeping in that time. I was basically uh, running my own little advertising agency with 10 employees. I was basically very much into the music business and had a band uh, where I had, I don't know, 250 gigs a year. I was running my own two clubs. And yes, apart from that, I also studied some law. <laughs> um and uh, i have to say uh, we discussed that recently that all of these side businesses being mm-hmm. in the entertainment mm-hmm. and show business also helped me later in my career yeah because um it had a lot of things to do with marketing and of course also selling yourself yeah absolutely yeah and then basically right after my university I ended up actually as an intern uh, in a young German sports rights uh, agency called UFA Sports, which we have just mentioned. At that time, this was uh, part of CAT, which uh, was again part of the Bertelsmann Group. Mm -hmm. And Bertelsmann at that time, uh, second biggest media group in the world after Time Warner uh, had bundled all their electronic business, uh, which was at that time minority shareholders in the RTL television group and uh, in some radio stations. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they had a little um, sports rights agency. UFA was at that time known because they had for the first time in history as a private agency the Bundesliga rights for the German market. But they lost them against the big uh, rival in Munich. We were all based in Hamburg, um, the Kirch Group. So Bertelsmann um, had to decide if they would have Close this new venture, or if they would continue and reinvent themselves, and so they started, said at the end, "Oh, let's do some trading in sports rights business," and that's where we all started.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So we're and not just to give everyone a sense of uh, timing here. So we're in '94, '94, '95 when you started there after your university. Um, so in the mid '90s, uh, in the world of sports, uh, you know, over 25 years back. Um, Now, besides that, UFA Sports was part of Bertelsmann, which sort of already gives a sense that, you know, there is obviously some serious firepower behind um, with this huge, you know, media group. Uh, But I understand UFA Sports wasn't, you know, there was several components to it, right? I I think you mentioned something from athletics to golf and tennis. And so maybe talk us through a little bit there. um, What were the different pieces of, of UFA at that time before we get into your part of it?
1: Yeah, basically, UFA, um, as I mentioned, was um, a little trading business on two floors. There was a film department uh, which actually wanted to compete against Mighty Kirch, who was basically controlling a big part of the German film trading business and European trading business, and a sports rights division, which at that time had um, four equal divisions. That was tennis, which was a big sport in the early 90s in Germany, to to Steffi Graf and Boris Becker. There was a back and field department, a golf department, and there was a tiny little football department with a couple of guys who all made um, quite uh, impressive careers later in the sports rights industry. But this little nucleus uh, was dealing with international and also German football. Uh, What you need to understand is that in principle, uh, sports rights marketing, which we all know uh, of course of today, in uh, the center of Europe, apart from the UK, was just invented. Because um, there were two major factors. One was that uh, the entire size of the business area doubled overnight after the Iron Curtain fell down. So basically the number of federations and clubs. And European competitions mm-hmm. increased massively uh, due to the
0: downfall yeah, of Soviet Union.
1: Yeah,
0: um, interesting timing. We talk about that, right? Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, some people want to restore it again and um, obviously uh, another major factor was that at the same time in most of the European uh, countries' private television stations, for the first time, allowed to be in the market. Right. For so competing against a state-owned sort of exactly. channel a yeah, for right? example, until the late 80s, um, we only had one or two state-owned programs, and suddenly yeah. all these new stations who um, appeared on the market had one massive issue. They needed uh, yeah. very quickly high ratings, and that means live sport, Yeah, and in, in, in Europe, live sport means football, yeah. um, so the broadcasting rights who existed, of course, before became suddenly overnight very valuable.
0: Got it. So when you joined these guys, what was sort of your first thing you guys were doing? What was the sort of rights you guys already were trading or dealing with at that time?
1: Well, it was very hands-on. Yeah, uh, don't forget at that time. I think uh, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have internet. Uh, we had a <laughs> That's <X right>. machine <laughs> on our desk. Um, actually, we had a printer next to our computer. And when we sent out what you would do today with mail, yeah, or a phone call, you basically printed a one pager went to the fax machine and sent it around the world. The rights we were dealing with uh, were mainly European Cup rights and uh, national team qualifiers, because Mm. all of these rights were at that time not centralized. I'll give you an example. European Cup at that time was divided in uh, UEFA Cup The Champions Cup on a Wednesday, UEFA Cup was played on a Tuesday, and we had on Thursday the Cup Winners' Cup, Um, Mm -hmm. three more or less equal competitions with a, a host of clubs from all over Europe. Right who regularly went to Geneva into the Noga Hilton uh, for the draw ceremonies. And that was um, uh, yeah, quite funny events because you had a couple of thousand crazy people from all over the world waiting for the draw results, uh, much less organized than you can see it today. And of course, you had a, a vibrant agency scene uh, with a lot of people who saw the opportunities here. And we're trying to get a piece of the cake.
0: Mm. Who who were the other players at that time? Who who were sort of the agencies were already out there competing in this space?
1: We had basically in Germany, as I mentioned, Bertelsmann, there was always the big competitor, the Kirch Group, uh, with a couple of different agencies who were under control of Kirch, ESPR, CWL, Kirchsport, who all later became then um, ultimately in front. There were some smaller agencies from London, uh, CSI is a good example. And then there were some Italian agencies um, based in Milan and Rome. So a lot of uh, smaller and tiny players. Mm. It was quite funny. I remember my first day in office at UFA. I was basically handed over a file because there was just an UEFA Cup final between uh, Inter Milan and Casino Salzburg. UFA had the rights of the Austrian club Salzburg. And I was basically ordered to sell third-party television rights around the globe. Right. on my first hours at office. yeah. So I dialed <laughs> some numbers and sent emails and I always remember I sold for a couple of thousand dollars. Third party rights of an UEFA Cup uh, final to the Middle East. Um, <laughs> an older lady uh, who was running ART, an Arabian pay broadcaster. Yes. Um, and um, we all know probably... What's her from- name, Lena? Uh, Exactly, it It was Lina. I know her. It was time buying, and my dad called me after my first date at office and asked, how was your day? And I said, Daddy, you can't believe it. I sold for $6,000 television rights to Arabia. And um, that was basically (laughs) my first day. Um, Very interesting, yeah, because um, in hindsight, you might smile about it, but it shows you that uh, Bertelsmann at that time was a very liberal, decentralized company who gave to um, even lower managers like us a lot of freedom and entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, which ultimately, I think, we paid back. Yeah, but I wouldn't uh, say that this is possible—that you basically on day one now start selling the crown jewels of a company.
0: Uh, that's true. So you, obviously, you spent five years there. So you know, in those five years, I know um, a lot of things grew, um, and and the, you know, and and your role, of course, became bigger and bigger. So let, let's talk a bit about that because. You know these these stories, and you, you hear it all the time. Uh, I, mean, I speak to others as well about how these rights were traded, and you know suitcases full of money was sort of handed out um, in the in the hotels. You know to capture it, and you know sometimes even the rights just you know doubled and tripled without. Whatever you know, within within uh, you know one trading session, uh, you know just just pick up a few of those. I think you know Poland. You've always you mentioned before was one of those where just you know the numbers just exploded.
1: Yeah, I mean it was a booming
0: market, which
1: um, later. We witnessed this also in a couple of other situations yeah and maybe even in today's world when we're talking about things like nft rights etc yeah it's a little bit business as usual so it was a booming market because it was a market which was just created Mm. and a lot of uh, your business success was connected to speed and basically taking opportunities i mentioned before there were a lot of new territories and countries yeah, which meant uh, always a lot of new business and I traveled the world Yeah, probably I have seen in that time every club uh, in the professional leagues of Europe which we try to visit and then to sign and to convince because typical German business attitude um, I mentioned before the draw ceremonies of UEFA and the UEFA competitions, we at, Germans, uh, at, at a German company from Bertelsmann uh, again came very structured and strategic into the business and said, well, this is one big lottery. Let's try to buy all the lots here in order to have a guaranteed success. So we tried to sign as many clubs and federations as possible mm. in order to have biggest commercial chances uh, when the draw ceremonies uh, would appear, and therefore um, you couldn't basically go wrong, yeah. Because even if you would have acquired rights to premium prices, ultimately you were always um, able to sell at higher prices because the market was doubling and tripling every two years. Oh, amazing which uh, needs, of course, certain skills, yeah? especially also when you were selling rights, Yeah, because um, I mentioned before that broadcasters needed these football rights, especially national team games yeah, were so big strategic rights. I remember I used to uh, uh, be involved in a couple of deals with big um, European national team games, which had to be acquired by some broadcasters. So when you were discussing with your opponent it was never a question if or when they would buy it. It was only the question for how much, uh, uh, which obviously need also you know, certain skills. We all know this, um, that you pressure out at the highest price, yeah. but at the same time, do not destroy your relationships to the missing parties or
0: basically to your main clients here. Absolutely. Now, when, do you, when you guys were buying these rights, was it mostly third-party and second-party rights, or would you have for the home country as well? Or how was that structured at the time? Yeah,
1: it was, um, of course, also the case in certain territories. In a lot of cases, um, and here we are coming already to the role of an agency. It was basically difficult for a German agency to buy first-party rights of a club in the UK yeah, because they basically mm. had their own relationships to Sky or the BBC. So, as a Hamburg-based agency, you hardly could add value here. And due to the intransparency of the markets, of course, we were um, our strength was um, knowing the markets, especially. Second party rights markets because again, third party rights, how we call it, and also other rights uh, were hardly developed. Uh, I just mentioned that I sold um, the Cup final for $6,000 to the um, territory of MENA, but obviously this has changed now dramatically. And when you see um, that uh, revenues of the Premier League um, are, uh, when it comes to foreign sales, bigger than the domestic deal. Um, it gives you a good impression how this market has
0: developed Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I yeah, no, for sure. And obviously, all of that was before the centralization. So, uh, unfortunately, well, to some degree, I guess you could argue, some of that has all gone away now uh, with these rights now centralized either in team or, of course, in CAA. Um, where you now it all sits there. But, you know, that was that comes a bit later, so we'll we'll come a bit back to that because obviously he was you know, it's more when when you when you were already when you had Kantaro. Um that's just before we move on maybe to IMG, let's just chat a bit about obviously the power of football during that time as well, right? Um it was not just sports, right? It was politics. You had politicians owning football clubs. Uh, you know, so there was, you know, this was always a whole lot more. I'm not saying it's not anymore today, but uh, even in those times already, right, it was uh, it was quite obvious. Absolutely. yeah.
1: And um, as a German, uh, it's sometimes difficult to understand, although uh, in football, uh, although football in Germany is, of course, the biggest sport and has a tremendous uh, public power. It's nothing when you look into uh, other territories in Europe, yeah, where football is, like a religion, yeah. Uh, mm. Look at Italy, look at um, Spain, a lot of other t- territories like Turkey, um, mm. etc. Um, I'm always saying that probably the president of FC Barcelona is uh, more important than the president of Catalonia. Nice. And therefore, you, uh, of course, came into contact and direct touch with a lot of important people. Take as an example uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who I met a couple of times because um, his political career and his uh, success was very close connected um, uh, to Isimella. the race in Milan, yeah? um, yep. which basically is a good example because in Italy football was more than um, just a game. Uh, these clubs had tremendous political power uh, because ultimately fans also were uh, voters. And were also used by politicians, you know, um, uh, to strengthen their fan base.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember absolutely.
1: I was once in a strange position and there was um, uh, for the World Cup in France, a very strange uh, draw result where... Italy and uh, England were drawn in one group. And um, I basically, or we had the rights of the uh, World Cup qualifying game, England versus Italy. Mm-hmm. So one little game, yeah. And it was very difficult for me to sell it because at that time, there was a kind of cartel situation between Mediaset and RAI and basically no one was uh, offering a market price. Wow. Ultimately, I was um, able to sell it for, um, I think, uh, still a record price for a national team game in Italy um, uh, to a guy called Jackie Gori, who at that time was trying to establish a third power um, in the Italian media scene with his own uh, television group, Theater Monte Carlo. And he acquired just this single national team game in order to get uh, missing frequencies to guarantee full coverage of his channels uh, throughout Italy. And it shows you that basically, um, yeah, with one little national team game, you could create politics. And uh, sometimes we were buying on the market entire packages so that you basically had four home games or even four away games or basically the entire game uh, package of a national team in one qualification period. And with these little packages, you could create entire new channels yeah? mm. on the Of just four or five national team games, which is illustrating the uh, tremendous strategic value of these rights at that time. Absolutely,
0: and and I think if we, you know, then look, if we fast forward a bit over the over then the next couple of decades, you know, then you had you know pay TV showing up, which again drove you know huge uh, growth in other parts of the world, you know, not always in the same areas necessarily as what you just described with these private channels, you know, and you had, you know, the telco companies coming in with IPTV, you know, now you again, you have, you know, OTT, OTT platforms showing up. And of course, you know, you mentioned NFTs and other So there's always a, there's an evolution to it, but sometimes it, it sort of, it still boils down to the same thing, right? It's the content itself, which drives That's- it, which drive these, these new uh, platforms. Sure, let me come back uh, at one stage or, so, or one more time
1: here to uh, the European Cup competitions. We, I know that you're also from Germany now. We all got raised by these uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday European Cup days during the season, with um, which I just mentioned, three equal competition formats. Um, well, I would um, estimate the commercial value 30-40-30 between the UEFA Cup, The Champions League and the Cup Winners Cup, and which basically created international revenues, which of course were smaller than uh, today's money but still quite significant at that time because um, a German club got for a European Cup game something like two, three million uh, German marks at that time plus advertising and ticket revenues, which was a lot of money at that time. But what I wanted to say that this in most of the leagues have created a kind of uh, competitiveness in the top third of the domestic leagues, which uh, due to the Champions League, absorb most of the money and was basically for the first 20 years very much promoted by UEFA because as you remember they abolished the UEFA Cup uh, the, the, the Cup Winners Cup in order to have a second day for the UEFA Cup and then basically for, for the first 10 to 15 years the old UEFA Cup, which later became Europe League, was also not treated very well by UEFA in order to promote uh, the Champions League. This has created basically um, uh, over the foundation of the monster we have now and the economic uh, situation in most of the leagues that you have a couple of top clubs uh, who consistently become uh, champions in the domestic leagues and uh, a much lower uh, competitiveness uh, in many of the top European leagues.
0: Oh, right. And there's no one bigger than Germany, I guess, really, right? Where, where Bayern Munich has been dominating, God knows how many yes. years is it now, nine years in a row or whatever, how many years it is it? No, the
1: 10th one, uh, look yeah, at Italy, exactly. Juventus, yeah. Yeah. England is different due to the investors, yeah. but uh, we have the same situation um, uh, in Spain yeah, uh, and a lot of other territories. Right. And still, you could say you know, as a club, if you win two uh, or if you're participating two or three times in a row the Champions League, then the distance to your next competitors who do not qualify to the Champions League is
0: massive. Yeah, yeah no, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I just the other day, I read about the sort of um, discussion. is obviously just early days about a playoff uh, in the Bundesliga to again mix it a bit up and you know give others maybe a chance to still beat Bayern even if you can't beat them over a whole season, you know. So, um, yeah, I think those are definitely ideas which need to be explored because it it will get boring. Well, it is boring already, I guess, unless you're a Bayern fan.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think uh, there are a lot of studies, you know. It's, uh, I think, the biggest issue for a league when you uh, do not have competition, no? it's uh, a little bit like you would go into a cinema watching a movie and you know about the end. Yep. Um, definitely you do not go into a cinema and uh, watch 10 times the same movie. Yeah. Knowing the outcome of it. And um, I see this as a massive danger. Um, and uh, you see other sports where it's very, very difficult to defend the title. Of course, the Champions League is a good example here, yeah, but um, have a look at the NFL. Um, but this competitiveness is always guaranteed also by the system. And I think it's something where um, the leagues and the responsible people in the leagues need to have a very careful look at.
0: Man, I agree. So now let's wrap up Ufa a bit here. So you spent five years there, um, hanging out with our buddy Robert and Lars and others who obviously had illustrious careers as well um, in the industry. Um, and I think you already were—you had Philip Huber, right? Your your partner later on as well. Um, was he already in Ufa as well? Or- well, he
1: was independent in Switzerland and. Um- At the end of 99, I mean, I used to live in Hamburg, I really liked this, but at that time I said, well, this can't be the end of your career. And there were also certain things uh, which at that time I didn't really like on Germany which, funny enough, uh, were the same reasons why I later returned 20 years later, yeah. But um, uh, at that time, uh, Mark McCormick, who was basically inventing sports rights marketing and was the founder and uh, president of IMG, decided also to get a bigger footprint into football. IMG, as you know, was uh, in a, a lot of other sports like golf mm. and tennis, the clear number one. And um, someone told McCormick, mm. well, if you really want to be number one, then you also need to get into the football business. Mm. Um, so we had a couple of discussions and then um, he basically uh, asked us to join IMG and to run the new IMG football division. Somehow we okay, had Who a was work- us,
0: just to define that?
1: Yeah, we were a couple of guys here and uh, ultimately um, uh, we convinced uh, McCormack very quickly by our idea of a house of football, Um, that's how we called it, where we were combining broadcasting rights an event division and also the management of players, which was pretty much the same IMG did in golf uh,
0: and in tennis as well. Right, right. Okay, so, so you you became the managing director international football, right? Um, based in London. So you moved from Hamburg to London. Um, and then, you know, again, how did you guys start? You, you started to obviously compete with your, you know, previous agencies and going after the same rides or you guys had a slightly different focus with that uh, you know, family, what what is that, house of football?
1: Yeah, it was, of course, very interesting because Bertelsmann at that time was a very German company in hindsight with a headquarter in Gütersloh, a little city or I would say (laughs) village near Bielefeld. Yeah. And IMG's headquarter was at that time in Cleveland, Ohio, mm. which was probably the greatest law of the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, But of course, it was also a massive culture shock and difference, Yeah, and very interesting to see how an American group works, yeah? and at that time IMG. I have to say, in all fairness, that uh, in the last days uh, of my comic, IMG wasn't in the best shape. There were a lot of old fat cats and a lot of young talents who left the agency Um, there were some economic issues in the agency but I had the feeling that McCormick always um, uh, knew very exactly what's going on I met him a couple of times, a yeah, very impressive guy, and he wanted to have some fresh blood. So we, with our hands on European football skates, came into a company um, where the culture was pretty much American uh, and also it in- influenced by the culture of uh, golf and tennis marketing, Mm -hmm. which is completely different than uh, the football industry. Uh, At that time, IMG was divided into a television part, TWI, and uh, event and players division, which was mainly in sponsorship business uh, at IMG. So this was also I would say not the most lucky structure because there were also some political conflicts uh, of interest, Mm -hmm. but we were very successful because obviously um, the brand name of IMG was always fantastic. And I would say that was one of the biggest achievements that um, when someone at that time was thinking about sports business, yeah, then there was only one real super agency uh, on a global basis, which was IMG or the other competitors, especially the ones in Europe now were much smaller. And um, IMG, due to its tradition, had an uh, incredible relationship to big corporations, especially in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they had a big understanding uh, also for the players' business, a very booming business uh, in the early part of the century because uh, the Bosman verdict uh, came just out and um, everyone realized that power and the money which would go into the pockets of the players would um, tremendously grow. Mm -hmm. Um, So, we were focusing also on this, an area which I didn't touch before because at Bertelsmann, uh, we always said players business is not a business for a group, so we quickly decided also to create a super agency uh, by basically buying out a couple of major players agencies Right. In Europe and combine them. Um which had uh, the full backing of uh, McCormick and the board because um, I think they did similar things in tennis at a golf and
0: that's so what we he, did. He knew what to do. He knew he knew that part. But I remember you know, when we spoke before both of course on this that, that didn't all works work out necessarily in all in all uh, in all areas, right? Um buying agents who many times are their own guy, it's, you know, they're very much sort of this lone wolf one man So, you know, putting them into a corporate structure isn't quite as simple as it sounds like, right? So, tell us a bit about that. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because. um I think in order to be a successful player's agent, you indeed need certain skills. Yeah? You just uh, mentioned the word lonely wolf. Yeah? Um, these were real uh, special characters at that time. Yeah, uh, Most of them were former used carpet dealers or uh, <laughs> some of them were sales representatives uh, in a car dealership around the corner. And became then very successful players agents. I would say there is no big difference. And when you look at today's scene, that a lot of uh, very successful players agents um, uh, had a very interesting uh, uh, career and background. Yeah, and um, uh, so definitely it was very difficult. To incentivize uh, these guys to work in a bigger cooperation. And I remember, I think um, one of our ideas to consolidate the business was always to create so called agent summits uh, where all of them uh, came to one place in Europe to coordinate transfers and actions. And it was um, very hard even to agree on a common date, yeah, because. Just out of their own interest, uh, when someone proposed Monday, uh, the answer was, I don't meet on a Monday. I can only do on Tuesday and vice versa. So you could see um, it's very, very difficult to industrialize. Well,
0: was, was it because there was were, there were just this constant competition between them? You know, is that where it comes I'm from? one of
1: them, yeah. And these are people and their skills and their background was basically very, very far away from coordination, uh, from teamwork work from scaling businesses, and I have to say to a certain degree, I would still uh, agree that this would even work today because obviously uh, when you're a successful agent, you can earn a lot of money, um, uh, but you do this always by fighting for a host of individual clients you are managing. Yeah? And yeah. since it's a personal business, it's clear um, uh, that the size of your business is also limited because you cannot offer personal service for whatever, a hundred payers. Yeah? And, um, right. That's one of the big issues. Yeah, Another thing which of course is um, uh, for a bigger group, also a big challenge is budgeting and managing and uh, forecasting because it's of course a very versatile business. And if one of your guys um, has a broken leg and a transfer um, the, is not happening, yeah, then um, it, it has, has a the big budget.
0: Deal your, yeah, on your, on your, right. your um, PNA. Yeah, that's for sure. So the the three years you were there, um, I remember you mentioned before you obviously you know you had some interaction with Mark, um, you know before he passed away, I guess. And then you have you know characters like Bob Kane and Alistair Johnson. You mentioned before, which were I guess de facto number two and three in the company. And um, and again, as a sort of young hotshot out of Germany, there. Trying to tell these big boys in the US um, how, how it works in football um, didn't always work, you know. Come across that well, right? So, you guys have stories on that?
1: Yeah, I remember. I think my uh, first ever meeting in, in IMG's headquarters in <laughs> Cleveland was in front of McCormick and uh, basically the board of IMG, which were a host of top industrials uh, from all over the US. Yeah, and at that time. Basically, the number two of IMG, Bob Kane, made an introduction, speak, and was talking about his future uh, football industry, uh, football strategy. Well, sir. Um, And McCormick uh, blatantly went to me and said, Philip, what do you think about this? And um, at that time, I was very young, uh, very German, very undiplomatic. And I said to Mark, (laughs) this is the biggest bullshit I've ever heard. Um, The reaction was that the entire uh, room, especially the board, including McCormick, was uh, laughing. I think Bob Kane wasn't at that time anymore my biggest friend, yeah? And of course he was a legend, yeah? I think um, Jerry Maguire was filmed after his career. Mm. Um, It shows you a little bit that uh, McCormick, although he was very old, yeah? Was a brilliant guy, yeah? Because uh, he liked these situations and he liked when people were direct, yeah? And non-diplomatic, he was a businessman. Hmm. Um, But of course at that time, you know we are talking here uh, in the year 2000, um, I would say uh, the competence uh, for the football business was not necessarily in Cleveland yeah, because uh, so the amazing. MLS started yeah, and they had a complete different approach uh, towards the football industry than um, we Europeans. They've yeah? Yeah, uh, sure. changed, of course, because we now have a lot of successful American people working in the football industry. But at that time, it was a very young business in the U.S.,
0: Oh, that makes sense. Now, there's another story which you shared last time about um, you spending some of Mr. McCormick's money, uh, I think without maybe checking in or so, and then there was some interaction there and his particular comment to you, uh, you know, how you how you used the money or, or your comment to him, which he always liked. Why don't you share that, that story? Well, uh,
1: we were basically warned, yeah, that uh, IMG was... Uh, Pretty much run by controllers, yeah, and there was a very strict financial regime in the company, yeah. But uh, of course, I knew this also from Bertelsmann. A lot of people said Bertelsmann would have been run by controllers. Kirch definitely wasn't run by controllers and we all know the outcome. Mm. And um, There were a couple of situations I remember. Um, I had to go into the office of McCormick because at one of these uh, television exhibitions I spent $500 on two bottles of red wine and put them as an expensive into my expenses claim. And for these $500 I was called into the office of comic um, explaining why I spent $500, um, but um, on that time I think we closed a multi-million dollar deal with Eurosport in a restaurant in Miami. Yeah. Actually, it was Nikki Beach, the first Nikki Beach ever. And as you could imagine, the French management of Eurosport, they ordered red wine, yeah, and very (laughs) expensive red wine. So I explained this to McCormick and said, Yes, I spent $500, but we closed here, but ever, $20 million deal. And he said, Oh, that's fine, perfect.
0: Hmm. And the same he
1: basically um, did when I once spent a little higher sum on an option, acquiring a major. Um, company, and he asked me, oh, why did you spend this, etc.? And I said, look, Mark, I'm always using your money like it's uh, mine, yeah? And he said, uh, he came across his desk, uh, gave me a hug, and said, that's the right answer. That's what I wanted to hear. Thank you. Please continue.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I like that. I mean, unfortunately, I have never met Mark. Obviously, he read all the books and heard many stories about him, but uh, you know, that, that, that does show... Uh, what an entrepreneur he was, um, and and like you, you know, being an entrepreneur yourself uh, or both of us, I think that is the sort of things we want to see. You know, if not just, of course, saying it, but you know, employees or people working with us uh, doing it. So I think that's a it's a great story and it's an important point to to bring across. Um, now, I know, you know, um, please go ahead. We talked about the importance now of uh, national team games and
1: uh, and the strategic value at that time. Hmm. And we got him then relatively quickly some important rights. And one was a Germany away game, uh, which IMG was controlling thanks to our work. And at that time, I mentioned before, uh, at UFA we were involved in tennis, but the big tennis boom in Germany ended after Becker, later Stich and Graf. went into retirement and IMG's key property also uh, for a long time was the Wimbledon television brands and they could never sell Wimbledon anymore. Into German TV, yeah, which of course was a massive issue for the Wimbledon Club because it was one of the biggest markets. Sure. And then suddenly, by bundling the rights, yeah, we were able, together due to the German national team games, to bring it back into German free TV. Mm. And that, of course, was very much in favor of my comic and 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 IMG the old
0: bundling but trick. We all did
1: that. Yeah, the old bundling <laughs> trick. Yeah. And they realized. Uh, apparently about the strategic importance then of football, no? and then yeah, of course absolutely. the power of bundling TV rights.
0: Yeah, that's the old age, the oldest agency trick in the books. Now. <laughs> <laughs> now, did did Mark pass away while you were there, or when? when yeah. did that's he. No, okay. uh, relatively quickly, and then
1: um, the company I think went even into Chapter Eleven or something like this. So later was then uh, bought by Forstmann. So a lot of people left the agency. Hmm. And it, it was also clear that football or the business, how we were basically um, dealing with football, uh, didn't have a huge uh, future in IMG. Um, it was probably a little bit too much away from their core business. And also at that time, financially, um, um, they couldn't manage to raise massive guarantees, etc. And we all know football was always a cash business, um, and that was at that time a big issue at IMG. So we decided uh, to leave IMG and right. were um, sitting in London uh, in a restaurant and came up to um, eventually create our own agency, you know, like a lot of people um, like did at some point in their <laughs> career. <laughs> And that's how we basically—that's how uh,
0: Kantaro was born. Yeah.
1: That's exactly. Right. Um, Kantaro basically is a Central African word, meaning lion mother, um, female warrior. So basically, we said we want to treat our uh, clients like little lions, no? and we are the lion mother. And it was a very <laughs> lucky time because 2003 was the beginning of the next uh, economic boom after the dot-com bubble that's was burst. Yeah. 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 And I think the next financial crisis was 2008, right? 2009, yeah, although football was pretty right. much apart from that. Mm-hmm. So we had a good timing here. Um, we had a lot of know-how. We were uh, already in our 40s. Yeah, so we were established people. We had a good contact network and created a little tiger here um, and a very uh, much growing business. Um, and this was you and Philip
0: now, uh, the other Philip, or okay. who, who else was all part of when you started Cantaro? We were the
1: founding partners. Um, uh, we then had some investors in, but in principle, uh, yeah, it was the two of us running the company. The two Philips. Right.
0: But uh, you mentioned you, you started in a, the, what, the Barclays Hotel in London before you got kicked out and had to find yourself an office, right? Exactly. Yeah. It was a flying start.
1: Yeah. We basically had a meeting actually in the Barclays Hotel, in the breakfast room, because it was next to my uh, house in London. <laughs> and um, we were thinking of creating something new but before we even were thinking about a name or a structure we already had the first wafer cup rights of a couple of clubs from Cy- cyprus and Greek, uh, greece okay. in our book
0: uh-huh.
1: and i think the next draw was already the day after so we started immediately with business and then um, probably we became so big and so noisy that we eventually were kicked out of the Barclays hotel's breakfast room <laughs> and ended in a little room sub-rented from one of our partners and investors um in the center of London yeah oh, and cool. just the four of us in a little room yeah uh, so when you part- started
0: what what was the let's say the first vision and dream or idea, that's the right word, was it sort of, you know, all the learnings you have from UFA and IMG and just, you know, rebundling it now on your own, of course, or was there something different? What, what was it? Was there a different twist to it? Uh, you know, what was sort of the big picture there when you started before we get into more of the nitty gritty here? Well, um, I think, um, first of all, we simply wanted to do business, yeah, but... Um, and um, some money. That's all, that's all good. <laughs>
1: Well, have fun and and make money, yeah, was one of our uh, (laughs) mottos here. But um, of course, there was um, the idea of a house of football by basically having uh, five major divisions, which was media rights, sponsorship, events, players, yeah plus tour organizing and tournaments, you uh, you know, the five big business areas at that time, mm-hmm. who would basically support and complement each other
0: and create a lot of synergies. And, and all uh, around be, football or was it outside yeah, where you're looking beyond football? Um, uh,
1: one of our first interns was Sauerland, um the son of the famous German box promoter, yes. Right. Um, who worked a lot with us and, and basically was our first employee and uh, brought in, uh, of course, boxing competence and boxing business. So we did a lot uh, on boxing too, but uh, okay. um, uh, 90% of the business or even 95% was uh, just football. Yeah, that was our right. con competence. And I still would say, you know, you should stick to the sports you understand, Yeah, mm-hmm. although um, media rights is a different thing, and you could probably say media rights uh, yeah, for a sport so. uh, which you do not understand. But if you want to get um, deeply involved into sports marketing, I think you need to understand the sport. Mm-hmm. And I would say I would be still a horrible agent uh, in, in marketing Cricket, yeah, a sport which I would probably or will never understand as a <laughs> <That's> Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: so let's let's uh, you know with your what was it Cyprus uh, little matches here and there. Obviously, that's you know you got started. But where was sort of the big breakthrough? Sorry.
1: Yeah, we we, we there was a second angle. Yeah, because we've seen of course also a lot of red t- tape. Yeah, uh, in a German company and then of course uh, even in an American. Yeah. Although it's uh, much less formal than a German company, but you see, of course, in an American company at that time at ING, similar amounts of red tape and uh, politics. Mm. And that was something uh, also we from day one wanted to totally. um, avoid, Yeah, uh, uh, and which was, I think, part, in hindsight, part of our success story, um, quick decision making. Yeah. Mm. Um, because, uh, as you know, the football business is very fast. No? Still today, although we are dealing with huge amounts of money, which normally um, involve institutional involvement, yeah, and institutional investors, and then the necessary board meetings, etc. Um, one of our big advantages was that we could decide, no? on site, very quickly. Because what I'm always saying is, no one cares about the game from last night, yeah, and. Um, mm-hmm you cannot rest on the success from yesterday yeah because um, uh, tomorrow is another day the
0: next match yeah. and in
1: principle the next match and you um, start from scratch yeah and so this was something even when we became much bigger than in the next years we always looked at it very carefully uh, to have very fast decision making processes
0: mm-hmm. now again uh, you mentioned earlier you had some investors. so there was when you had to write some larger checks, there was some funding available to uh, you know put put money in there. I'm assuming it wasn't just your own money, right?
1: Yeah, it was own money and then, of course, we had um, some people who helped us. But um, obviously, uh, uh, we were quite lucky in the economic development of the company. Uh, So we earned from day one uh, substantial monies, which we always reinvested. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then, of course, when we were involved in bigger projects, you were looking, of course, constantly for funding and refunding these investments. Mm. Um, uh, of course, football, um, uh, I always mention, uh, it's a cash business where uh, when you, at that time, uh, signed uh, whatever kind of deal, you were always asked um, uh, by the right holders for significant uh, down payments. Yeah. Right even years before the contract actually started yeah because you signed these agreements probably 2 years um, um, in advance yeah while old companies or competitors were still holding these rights, even then you had to bring on the table sometimes 50% of the um, overall value of the contract <laughs> and i, and I mean funny.
0: i, I got to jump in here because i remember the story you told me last time that uh, those agents on the other side uh, people representing the clubs weren't always the people who were actually with the club, right? <laughs> so you <laughs> there were some deals which you mentioned. I think you mentioned before something that maybe not yourself, but others uh, ended up paying money to you know obviously some guy who just you know acted like he be- he was the you know belonged to the club and then ran off with the money. Uh, uh,
1: the white days huh? in the early nineties where you know, we tried at Ufa to get as many contracts as possible. And one of the basically tools we had, of course, we could offer clubs a so-called signing fee, yeah, basically right. a non-refundable one-off payment, uh, which was not even connected to the rights fees, yeah, but an init- uh, initiative to mm-hmm. sign a long-term rights deal, a representation deal with our company. And um, uh, we were talking here to clubs from... Uh, first divisions in Europe, uh, uh, probably not um, clubs from the Premier League at that time who was already starting. And uh, very successful, but um, uh, when we are talking about a Polish first division club now, or a Russian club, and um, you offered them a couple of hundred thousand German marks at that time, yeah, uh, like something someone. like whatever one, two, three hundred thousand euros, this was sometimes uh, the annual budget of the clubs at that time. Yeah, mm. so there was a huge incentive. And I mentioned already the downfall of the Iron Curtain and the major restructuring of football there. And of course, um, this business was then also sometimes used by criminal elements, and we even had people once coming into our office who uh, pretended to be um, the representatives of a club. And when we basically signed the contract, of course, um, they got their money. And when we um, sent our congratulation facts to the club, I think it was somewhere in Belarus or Russia, uh, we got a a short answer from the club. "Uh, We do not understand your facts. No one of our club board was ever in Hamburg (laughs) signing a contract. Ouch. So it was uh, probably very easy to make money at that time, just uh, getting an old club blazer and uh, traveling <laughs> on or two funny. of these agencies and um, <laughs> cashing in signing fees for signing contracts.
0: <laughs> uh, that's a good story. Now coming back to Kentaro here. So see as you said, you had events, sponsorship, media rights, player. You know, you, you had I think five hundred players under under an agency as well. What was sort of the biggest part of the company? What was it really what was sort of you guys were making the most money or you you would always consider it was sort of your crown jewel uh, in what you were doing?
1: A couple of um, uh, successful uh, projects. Of course, media rights was at that time still very, very much booming. Yeah, national team games. uh mm-hmm. At that time, club business was already more or less non-existent due due to the uh, centralization of um, the Champions League and then later, of course, also to the Europe League. So agencies could only um, market qualifying games to the major rounds and that was of minor uh, interest um we were very successful in um, media yeah. rights of federations we were involved in some league deals we had the domestic uh, league rights in sweden a massive project yeah. Yeah, um and of course we had a lot of players yeah. um we did the same uh, like we did at img acquiring a couple of agencies we've learned a little bit because um We only bought 51% of the shares of these companies in order to consolidate them, but in return also leave enough incentives uh, Mm. for the people. Uh, Most of these guys we also knew for a long time, so this worked much better than um, uh, we did before at IMG. And we created something like, a, I would say, a new business by... um, Arranging big friendly matches on neutral ground. I remember I was. um, Brazil. Yeah, Brazil is a good example. It actually started with a game um, uh, in Geneva where we organized England against Argentina. At that time, uh, the English FA needed a away game in order to um, fulfill one of their television contracts. I think they needed to deliver to ITV an additional away game. And I said, why don't you come to Geneva? Yeah, Because that was very convenient from London to fly to Geneva. There were a lot of expats and also for English fans, easy to reach. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got hold of Argentina and uh, brought the Argies to Geneva and had suddenly on a gruesome November day in 2005, a friendly game between two countries on a neutral ground. The other game was massive because, of course, England, Argentina, was never a friendly, it was a little bit like Germany, <laughs> Holland. you know, there was yep. a big history uh, starting with the Falklands and so on. Yep. Um, Uh, The English or the Archies were leading, I think, 2-1 until the 89th minute until little Michael Owen scored twice, yeah, and England won 3 2 So it was a perfect day. And for us, it was the start of a new idea because suddenly we had television rights into both territories. We could market games in Mm. territory where there is no strong national team. Uh, Geneva, I think, had a nice little stadium. They never had a big, big game and I never had the chance to see um, teams like Argentina or England so you could say them quickly out, and uh, we created uh, the Brazil World Tour, yeah, by signing sure. Brazil and. Where, where doing... did you
0: all take them? I mean, because I remember even we were talking about that time. I think even you know trying to do one here in Asia, which never happened. But uh, where did you take these guys? Because I know initially it was thinking, Europe, right? uh, a lot of Europe. A lot of players were yeah, in Europe I anyway. Right?
1: Thought, uh, we were responsible for organizing 120 Brazil games 120 around games? the globe yeah wow. and then oh, uh, i really think nice. a further 70 or 80 with argentina and then uh, oh, a lot yeah. of other games with smaller nations yeah but um uh, the brazil games were massive because um wherever we went at that time there was yoga bonita this was the biggest team uh in yeah. the world and we set up the full infrastructure on our own yeah we had um from ticketing down to merchandising and the vip room we yeah. run in-house. Of course, there was massive pressure because uh, the CBF uh, got a lot of money uh, from this contract per game guaranteed. So um, it was in their interest that we would organize at every possible FIFA match day a game. So sometimes we had to organize uh, games um, overnight. I remember we organized once a game in Barcelona, um, which was a game uh, Brazil against Ecuador. At that time, the president of the Spanish FA had certain political issues with the president of the Brazilian FA. So for whatsoever reason, he didn't give us final approval for organizing these games because FIFA regulations always said you need to have approval by the host federation in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We already had plastered the city of Barcelona with match day posters and flyers in order to sell the ticketing, and the game was, I think, five days ahead. But we put basically everyone in a jet and were flying to Stockholm and organized the entire game, Brazil, Mm -hmm. Ecuador, within five days in Stockholm. Uh, of course, it was sold out. I think the day after we arrived in Stockholm, we started um, ticket sales, and there was a—I don't know—one kilometer queue around the corner in our office in Stockholm for people queuing up for the tickets, because at that time Brazil was uh, the superstar team with Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Kaká,
0: and so on, and everyone wanted to watch that. That's—I mean—you know—already obviously we you know we've done games too. Um... And and the game is always a massive undertaking, right? The logistics of it, and and of course, selling tickets and setting up the venue, and you name it. And, you know, doing 120 of those things is just insane over that, you know, I guess uh, 10 plus years there as well. Yes, and they were all massive.
1: Yeah, I remember, I think we did Argentina, Brazil in the Meadowlands uh, Stadium in in New Jersey. That was uh, after the World Cup 2010. It was basically uh, messy against. Mm -hmm. Neymar mm. uh, so tickets, hundred thousand tickets for hundred dollar each. Yeah, I mean hundred dollar for a friendly um, is a lot. Yeah, especially yeah. for European pricing. Of course, mm-hmm. um, for an <laughs> <and> if, uh, <laughs> ticket, it's nothing. Yeah, but it, we would uh, talk of the town in, in New York on that night. Yeah, and um, but we went also to very crazy destinations, uh, and it was always very successful because everyone laughed. And there were a lot of Brazilians around the world. And of course, a lot of um, people loved simply Brazilian football. So there were hardly any uh, matches which were not successful.
0: Mm, Interesting. We write
1: logistics, etc. It was a hard-working team. We had a whole event division there, uh, who night and day worked from hotels uh, over buses, et cetera. I think one of the most crazy things uh, we ever did was organizing um, a pre-World Cup training camp in the center of Switzerland in Vegas, a little village. Um, where at that time uh, we generated roughly around $20 million on revenues for Five or six days of training. Of training. Yeah, so we yes, sold tickets uh, for people uh, watching the training camp and transmitted uh, the training sessions of Ronaldinho, how he was running up and down the pitch uh, into 65 countries. So um, it gives you a little bit, uh, yeah, an idea about the impact of Brazil at that time.
0: Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. It's funny. It's great. I mean, you know what? And the, the this stuff still happens, right? I mean, you're aware of that. We're putting together a Here Uh, and by the time the podcast is live, um, well, the press conference will be out there. So, we're bringing Liverpool and Man United here um we're not the promoter but you know we we are the the agency who put it all together and uh yeah it still works and and the and you know, similar you know the tickets are expensive but it's the two biggest football clubs club you know club clubs um in the world especially here for this region and you know we'll have a full house and crazy fans around you. so those matches if you get the right ones uh, they can be lucrative and of course and they can be very exciting
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I think uh, national team games have lost a lot of their appeal. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, now you have the super clubs who, of course, do this <laughs> now much more strategically. Um, we did a couple of games with Liverpool and also then with Man United and training camps, etc. We had a, always a very strong relationship to the spotting size of the clubs. Yeah, uh, That helped a lot. And even at that time, I remember that Man United asked crazy money, Yeah, which was very, very difficult to refinance but mm. nothing compared to the money they get now when they go overseas yeah but um, yep. uh, we were definitely shaping this part of the uh, business yeah and yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit the players' business. Indeed, we had around 500 players in the books, so massive. I don't know if they all existed uh, or if there were some skeletons uh, among them, but I think um, uh, there were more than 250 national team players involved. Yeah, And we had bought uh, the biggest agency at that time in the UK, uh, so we were also managing some of the biggest stars at that time in the Premier League because um, our partner, the Rome Andersen was instrumental in bringing the first big superstars into the Premier League, um, like Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, uh, Emmanuel Petit, etc. Um, and I think we even had Slatan um, Ibrahimovic in our oh. books because our Swedish agency was managing him until uh, okay. he then went to Mino Ragnola,
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, the first two So friends, you had so. your fingers everywhere, basically. So yeah, I, we I mean, going up... So you know, starting with between the two of you there, um, well, at the end, let's say not, not at the end, maybe, but uh, sort of at the peak, um, how many people were you, and you know, what were sort of some numbers you can share just I mean, to get I a sense and scale and size?
1: Business, yeah, around the world, and uh, more than one hundred fifty people working for us, and a turnover of roughly two hundred million dollars. Yeah, so uh, nice. uh, was of course. Um, nothing against you know companies like IMG etc but it was a nice business you know and very thriving business
0: yes yep. Last time we talked a bit about it, and because I've had, obviously, that same experience on my end here, is that partially part of the problem of our industries of course, is that the, the overheads are large, right? Um, you know, you have an expensive team of people uh, flying around the world, you know, doing the business we're doing. And uh, the more successful those guys become, the more they want <laughs> and the more expensive it gets to keep them, uh, you know. And, and so you're always kind of chasing a little bit your own tail there. You know, what, what sort of, you know, your, your take on that? No, absolutely.
1: Um, uh, I always remember I had at that time already a banking partner, um, which was giving us a massive loan. Um, This was a fund from Luxembourg, who uh, later came also into administration and was uh, taking over by a very, very strict guy, you know, who made the turnaround of a lot of business. He didn't have a clue about football. And uh, I came into the office and introduced myself and he said, oh, football, that's all bullshit, you know. And then he looked at our balance sheet and our numbers and he said, what, you have 20 million euro overheads? How should that work, you know? And um, of course, I was defending our business. Yeah, I sometimes need to smile when I think about it because he might have been right, yeah, because um, the business became much more transparent. You didn't have any more the pioneer winnings from the 90s we discussed before. Principle, you had to work on a 20% commission base, yeah, and that basically means uh, when you have a 20% margin, and you have 20 million overheads, the first 100 million uh, yep. euros or dollars of your turnover yeah, bring straight you, out of the window. Yeah, close to break even, but only under the condition that all of your 20% deals are uh, fully working. Yeah, and uh, we all know that um, there are businesses, yeah, where you also have to invest a lot of money and you are not very lucky or successful. Right. So basically, you're absolutely right now. You um, have every morning huge pressure to work against uh, your co base, And um, this, of course, was also very much connected to the wages and salaries in our industry. Um, I mean, we all benefited in one part from that. But when you then basically running your own company, um, you also are facing the crazy uh, monies which are spent for wages and bonuses, etc., uh, which was, I think, part of the connection to the football industry. Now we recently discussed that the bus driver of Borussia Dortmund had um, a, a winning bonus in his contract. So whenever the team was winning, he got a bonus. Oh, really?
0: Um,
1: okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so next, in my next life, I've, I become also the uh, bus driver of Dortmund. But um, uh, connected um, uh, also to our situation in London yeah, where mm, the whole uh, economic business and climate and the way how people are dealing was very much influenced about the city mm-hmm. and the banks there yeah. and yes there were a lot of situations where um, a young employee who for the first time in his life sent uh, an email came the next day to you and asked for a share in the company yeah. and of course a share in bonuses So this was a situation which was not always easy to deal with, and uh, I would say, yeah, uh, in general in the football business, salaries and wages are still very, very high.
0: Absolutely. Now, before we sort of starting to kind of close in here and 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 wrap things a bit up here, there's a few more things I want to touch on. One is, of course, your little some Asian story here, um, especially Thailand. Uh, where am I calling from here? And uh, you're involved in with Manchester City and Tucson in here. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I
1: know you are currently based in Bangkok, yeah, Um, and uh, somehow a city, Uh, we did a lot of business because after uh, signing up all European federations, we basically had the idea, now let's um, (laughs) conquer the world. Do the same in Asia. uh, Yeah, and do the same in Asia. At that time, the Asian market wasn't developed um, like today, I think the only meaningful TV monies you got from uh, for, for a national game was from Japan and uh, um, South Korea. So clearly we were very, very uh, early there and maybe a little bit too early. It wasn't early. so
0: easy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember we once signed the Federation of Guam yeah? until we found out that they even didn't have a own pitch. <laughs> um, I don't know if that uh, has been uh, rectified. <laughs> did,
0: we we did some deals together at that time when you had some of the Asian teams here I think where well, that's I remember that now Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, one of our um, uh, favorite deals we had was somehow the Thai Federation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that we ever made money on this. We organized once a year the King's Cup a tournament in, I don't know, mid-January, where it was very difficult to find uh, national teams to play in the mid of January, outside of FIFA dates in Bangkok. Yep. But we had a close contact to the Federation, and somehow the president of the fed- oration was also very close to the president of Thailand which was Mr Thaksin. Mm-hmm. And we were once uh, driving uh, through London and just wanted to have a coffee in the Dorchester, a uh, famous hotel and park lane. Yeah and bumped into Mr. Thaksin, who was just kicked out of Thailand oh. um, uh, due to a military coup and um, told us about his uh, fantastic uh, marketing campaign now to basically whitewash his name and to get back into power in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And for whatsoever reason, we said we have a better idea. Um, why don't you buy a Premier League club and um, via this, yeah, you can basically wave every Saturday into the television cameras and then uh, broadcast your menu back into Thailand. uh, Why not? That's the beginning of uh, this. So we were involved in a couple of M&A deals in the Premier League. Where we basically did a little bit like a, a investment banking boutique, because again, you know, doing the deals wasn't most complicated, yeah, because uh, we were dealing here with uh, classic English limiteds. So uh, I remember the transaction of Man City. I think we did within twenty-four or forty-eight hours, yeah. Wow. Um, it's not very rocket science. The only thing which, uh, again, a classic. Investment bank, yeah, could not do was to bring the decisive or the decision makers on one table because, uh, in principle, you were dealing with a crazy billionaire on one side, yeah, and also the selling parties were illustrious businessmen, yeah, with huge egos. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the most difficult part of the deal was to bring them into Managed one them. Yep, absolutely. Nail, nail the deal. The rest was. Um, uh, than business
0: as usual. Uh, I think, if anything, both of us and anyone in our industry who's been in this space for long enough really learned is that managing of egos, right? Because that's what you, as an agency, always have to do, right? The egos on both sides of the can- table, you know, whether it's a big broadcaster who yeah, has plenty of money, or as you said, it's the federation or the team or someone who obviously has equal power there. Um, And we're always the guys in the middle, right? So I think uh, we do get quite good at that part. I mean, I I believe so. No,
1: you're absolutely right. And a very clever uh, uh, guy from the industry told me very early that the people... Who are uh, in the clubs and federation business and top positions and presidents? They are at the end only there because of their egos, yeah, because they want to see their own picture in the papers, yeah. Um, and look, uh, I mean, when I ask you, do you know the CEO of Bayern, no? one of the biggest companies in the world? To be honest, I don't know even his name. Yeah, um, when we are talking about the CEO of Bayern Munich. Mm-hmm. Um, the media footprint, uh, which is a hundred times bigger than the CEO of Bayer and that of course is very interesting for people who are looking to um, have their picture um, on the front page of all the magazines. Yeah.
0: Now. To so kind of, you know, come a bit to obviously what you're doing now as well, um, you know, Kentaro obviously uh, did close his doors and uh, and as usual, there were all sort of stories around it uh, and, you know, people can read it. I'd uh, love to hear a bit from your point of view, you know, what you what happened, uh, you know, from, from, uh, from your angle. Sure. Well,
1: there were a couple of reasons. No, ultimately, I would say um, every company has a certain lifespan. Yeah. Um, when you look at the agency scene, most of the big agencies, yeah, are hardly existing anymore. Are in trouble. Yeah. So, uh, but of course, it had also to do with some uh, political issues we had, which was also connected to the federation business we did. Yeah. So, as you know, this was also centralized uh, in Europe by Mr. Platon. So a big part of our business was then also ending, and that has changed, of course, also the agency landscape a lot. But in principle, we all know this. As an agency, you need to reinvent yourself every six months. Um, I would say this is not anymore... Relevant to the sports industry alone, uh, we are talking probably about every business in the world, um, uh, yep. which is in global competition. So life goes on, and yes, you have to uh, reinvent yourself uh, probably now every three months, otherwise, you're gone. Yep.
0: So, how did, uh, what is Mr. Philip doing now? How did you reinvent yourself here? Well,
1: I'm uh, back in Germany now after nearly 20 years or 18 years in London. I think normally people... Managed to stand 10 years in London, yeah, because it's such a busy city mm-hmm. and definitely a city where you do not want to retire. Um, and I mentioned that I left Germany in 1999 for a couple of reasons, yeah, and these were more or less the same reasons why I eventually went back. So uh, I, I moved to Berlin in 2017. Um, um, And Berlin is, uh, to a certain extent, one of the most dynamic cities now in the world, especially in our industry. Ah, As you know, the media business in Germany was always divided between um, Hamburg and Munich. Um, This has changed now a lot and a lot of the media business is um, coming out of uh, Berlin, so you meet a lot of people here. And um, we set up here with partners a new business called Akani, also dealing a lot with sport and entertainment. We do also some other stuff. And uh, when you look at the pandemic situation in the last two years, yep. there were, I think a couple of things you know uh, where the industry had to learn a lot from, yeah, because um, we mentioned that before. It's probably the first time in history, at least in my career, um, that football is realizing now, that the sky is not any more the limit. Yeah, uh, the COVID uh, crisis uh, is completely different than all the other economic crises before. We talked about the dot-com bubble in 2003 or the financial crisis in 2008, which had a massive impact on world economics and also on a lot of other sports but never on football yeah even in times of tight budgets uh, budgets uh, broadcasters were basically cutting secondary programs yeah but were keeping football you know on their screens or in their sponsorship portfolios and this has changed now no? for the first time um, because um, partly games were not even played. Yeah? And um, right, that, I think was a massive shock for a lot of people in the industry. And um, it's coming at the time which already before COVID showed that there is at least in certain parts now for the first time also in a long Time, or even I would say history, a certain, um, yeah, basically stop uh, on the increase of revenues. Yeah, uh, we are talking about media rights, of course, no? the traditional media rights, where big European uh, leagues like the Premier League could manage at least to stay on the same level, while other leagues, yeah, look at the Bundesliga, had a massive decline in their revenues domestically, and where people need to think uh, very carefully now. Um, how to consolidate their businesses and uh, to see where is the growth rate, yeah. because at the same time you see still the massive growth and uh, wages and salaries of the players. Yeah, and although everyone says, "Oh no, player salaries uh, need to get down," yeah, um, uh, everyone knows this is complete bullshit. You know, due to some drivers in the industry who are economically independent, like uh, top. Clubs who are basically financed by state funds.
0: Yeah. Right. But coming back to Akani, I mean, yeah. if you remember what we just said before, um, you, you know, I think you're doing some stuff with NFTs and avatars and, you know, the metaverse and so on. Just, just talk a bit about that. Um, what exactly are the things you guys are doing? That's what I just wanted to
1: mention. We um, um, uh, work very much with the monetization of fan communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we manage a couple of stars and celebrities. Mm-hmm. And. Do a lot uh, with basically um, NFTs now, which uh, to a certain extent is uh, pretty similar, like all the other developments we both witnesses to see. And uh, a lot of things is for us business as usual, yeah, because again, it's speed and development. So we are doing this, mm, um, and a couple mostly of focused
0: our- around what again. Uh, football a bit or, or completely yeah, different Yeah, it's very things. much uh, players we do.
1: We do celebrities, marketing and uh, we are also consulting some clubs and leagues. Um, we have an office in uh, Morocco because partners of mine and um, have an Arabian background, so we work uh, also in the Northern African part of the football business, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a base in, in, in Riyadh, a very um, interesting country, yeah, uh, and developing their partnership currently. Saudi um, as well. All right. Yes. So, and of course, we do, um, yeah, uh, the usual business. We do not deal a lot anymore in media rights because, um, as you know, this is mainly centralized now. In the yeah, center. that
0: business is over and done. That's uh, for, exactly. oh, for many of us. You know, there's a few still in it, but uh, yeah, that has really dramatically shifted away from the agencies. Uh, Philip, uh, I think we could go on here forever, as we normally do when we <laughs> when we are chatting. You know, just between <laughs> us, not on. Uh, not on radio, so to speak here, Uh, you know, where we go on for hours, uh, which is always fun. So, but uh, in essence of time here, I want to sort of just sort of start wrapping it up here. you know just maybe let's have a little final last look here. You know, you're looking back at the last 25 years, and is that obviously football was a big theme? And you, you already touched on it that you know salaries are still continues to grow for players, and you know, but the money in the in the game is you know maybe has shifted. Um, it's probably not necessarily less, but it's clearly moving you know from certain traditional revenue streams to new spaces. And, and we all need to kind of take you know, watch that and, and be part of it. Um, what, what's What's your sort of thought on it? Sort of sort of final thought here for the for the evening here on a on a Sunday.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm very thankful, you know, for uh, the things I have learned in this industry. Yeah? As you know, it's a 24-7 business. Mm. And we all, I think, we never had holidays. Yeah? So it's, of course, due to the speed and uh, to the fact that somewhere someone is... Uh, most
0: people would say we never worked either, but uh, that's a really good <laughs> yeah. story.
1: Or we always work, <laughs> yeah, because someone somewhere is always playing football yeah and um, it's a global business yeah so um, uh, yes you put a lot of energy and sleepless nights into this but in return of course you make uh, incredible uh, experiences and uh, you know countries uh, on a global base and sometimes uh, you even develop friendships so um, this is something which I think we all should be very grateful about the global connection yeah in this business and that was always um, the thing which I really or still like most on this, yeah. The other thing is, of course, um, what I just mentioned that you could never stop. Yeah? It's not like dealing whatever was a patent or you are inventing something and can live the rest of your life from the royalties. Yeah, uh, In principle, we all need to get up the next morning uh, and make the next deal uh, yeah. and reinvent yourself, which right. I mentioned, which is, of course, also quite nerve-wracking. Yeah? But on the other side, it keeps you young. Yeah, and I agree. think this, is with all the digital, you know, I remember one thing, I, we, we had to open the new Wembley Stadium. Uh, because um, uh, the English FA spent a lot of money there and they couldn't even pay Brazil anymore. So we basically brought Brazil to open the Wembley Stadium. And it was a fantastic early summer day in London. Yeah, 90,000 people in the Wembley Stadium and a fantastic game between England and Brazil. And I was wondering, well, this is fantastic, what should come thereafter. Yeah? Mm. And I remember the next morning I was on a plane somewhere to Azerbaijan ne, dealing about UEFA Cup rights, and it's exactly what I just said. Yeah, No one mm. cares about the game last oh, yeah. night, which, of not, course, yeah keeps us all very young yeah? and very juvenile because uh, you need to go with the latest trends. Yeah? And um, uh, I would also recommend this to everyone who wants to join the industry, yeah? also the younger people that of course, with all the digital possibilities now yeah? and uh, the new platforms coming up, um, I think there's hardly a time where you had more chances to be successful in this business when you grab the opportunities and are smart and clever and fast yeah and um, look older veterans like you and me we need to uh, (laughs) manage to cope with the speed uh, but um, still i would say
0: we are in the game yeah (laughs) absolutely i think the experience does count for something here and and and, for my last thoughts on what you just shared is uh i think there are a couple of things one is uh, like I said yes, the reinvention of an agency I think it's is definitely true. Um, and when I look at TSA, you know I always say we're at TSA 5.0 or 6 now uh, you know, and you constantly reinventing that um, I also agree with that you know, it's difficult to build strong assets right because you can't own things it's or, or more difficult to own things in, in the industry right That's one and so someone you know uh, compared our industry a bit to investment banking. Uh, which is very similar, right? you always as good as your next deal, right? And you always have to find, you know, the next company you take, public or the next whatever deal you're brokering. And so I think that's really what sports marketing is all about. And uh, guys like us have done it, obviously, and, and we drove and, and, and thrived by that. Uh, but it is, it's not as simple as it sounds like, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: absolutely, absolutely. <Yeah.
0: laughs> Philip, I was, you know, this was a lot of fun, and as I said, I know you have a you know day ahead of you here in, in Berlin. So enjoy your day. Um, thanks for the talk. Uh, enjoyed it a lot too, and I'm sure we'll talk some more soon. Thank you very much, Marcos.
1: Take care, Anna, and Definitely. all the best. Same to you. Cheers.
0: The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts